Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. The very first trial um, was moved to Sanford uh, on a change of venue. Judge Woodson was the uh, the judge in the case. Um, we filed, obviously, motions to suppress the dog evidence, which he denied. Um, and the prosecutors were? The prosecutors at the time were Dean Moxley, who was quite fond of dealing with not only the dog in many, many cases, but in feeling comfortable with um, jailhouse um, testimony. And the other prosecutor in the case was Chris White. That was the first time around. The jury deliberated and they came back with a guilty verdict. They deliberated further on a penalty and came back with a recommended life sentence. And Judge Woodson overrode the recommendation of life and sentenced Juan Ramos to death. When the lights go out and you're there alone, you, you can't do nothing but think about it. You know, you, you're trying to hold on to hope, but you know, you, you file a motion, they turn it down, they file them. And then after a while, you're like, well, just tell me when it happens. You know, just tell me yes or no. I don't want to think about it. You know, it's because you got to live inside or out, whether you're innocent or guilty. You can't live outside and be inside. You'll go crazy. I've seen it before. I've seen many guys that couldn't handle it, and they were guilty. <laughs> so, you know, just imagine you shouldn't be there. I'm news columnist John H. Juarez, and welcome back to Season 2 of Murder on the Space Coast, where over the course of 14 episodes, we are taking a long, hard look at how three, and possibly more, men were convicted of serious crimes in the early 1980s that they were not guilty of. How could this happen? Imagine spending 10, 20, or 30 years in prison for something you didn't do. A closer look seems to show that it may not have been a strange and improbable coincidence but rather a systematic approach by the state attorney's office. Primarily, Prosecutor Dean Moxley, who later became a judge, to win cases where there was little or no real evidence to support a conviction. Moxley, as we heard former public defender J.R. Russo say, was, quote, fond of dealing with dog handler John Preston and very comfortable using jailhouse testimony, end quote. We know now, all these years later, that John Preston was a total fraud and a liar, And we know that many in the state attorney's office knew he was being investigated as a phony back then as well. We also know that jailhouse snitches often will say anything for a reduction in their sentences. We know they sometimes lie. We know that Moxley liked to use one in particular jailhouse snitch, Clarence Zaki, a murdering child rapist, as a star witness. Moxley used him in two of the five cases we'll be exploring in this podcast— In at least one of those cases, we know the man convicted did not do it thanks to DNA evidence. That was Wilton Dedge, whose case we explored in an earlier episode. So Zaki, who'd said Dedge confessed, was a bald-faced liar. Zaki lied to put an innocent man in prison. So how did Moxley and prosecutors come up with these snitches and these so-called confessions? I 
can't prove it, but it sure sounds like they were coached on what to say, and even planted near defendants so they could testify to these alleged confessions. But even more importantly, why do it? Why bring in the dog handler testimony and the snitch? We saw it in the case of 20-year-old Wilton Dedge, who was sent to prison for 22 years because of the testimony from the dog handler expert and that of Zaki. And now we've seen Cuban refugee Juan Ramos tried and convicted of murder and sentenced to die, even though there was absolutely no physical evidence linking him to the crime. Once again, the dog was used and another jailhouse snitch. Longtime defense attorney Joe Mitchell, who represented Zaki, says prosecutors must have simply convinced themselves that, evidence or not, they were doing the right thing by putting these quote-unquote bad people in prison. Well, you see, the thing about it is, if you rationalize to yourself, whoever you're prosecuting, whoever they may be, Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, Juan Ramos, Gary Bennett, they're bad people, horrible people. And so what you do is you have, you're, you're on a righteous cause to convict somebody that's guilty. It's a horrible person, and that allows you to do things like that. Whoever's going to say this guy's guilty, if it'll help your case, you put him on. But I, I think the, the issue here in all these cases They've got something invested in this case, and they just can't say, I could have made a mistake. Maybe I made a mistake. Based upon what I knew at the time, I did what I thought was right, but based upon the information I know now, I may have been mistaken. You know, there's always a whole bunch of equivocal language they could rely on, but that's not what you get around here. You get a a 100%, 200% investment in, if you get this done, John, you'll do it over my dead body, or my uh, protesting body. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't, you know, I don't think what you're doing, I don't, I don't agree with you, and I'm going to fight it to the bitter end, and I don't really care what you show me, because I think they're pretty comfortable was if there was a smoking gun here. I love talking with Joe Mitchell, not only because he's a great source and has a great way of speaking, but also because he's a huge baseball fan. In fact, I once wrote a story about how he had visited every major league ballpark in the country. For a while, he was mailing me his ticket stubs. I also know there are some who do not like him. And so in the spirit of total transparency here, it should be noted that Joe Mitchell had a bit of a problem with the Florida bar back in the late 1980s. He was suspended for a couple of weeks and reprimanded for not properly training his legal secretary who Xeroxed court documents with signatures from an assistant state attorney on them. Another attorney unwittingly submitted one of those documents in court during a misdemeanor case. Okay. So back to the story at Juan Ramos, where, believe it or not, luck was finally on his side. After the jury brought back a guilty verdict, the best thing that could have happened to him did when Judge William Woodson overruled the jury's recommendation of life in prison and instead sentenced Ramos to die. Why? Because all death sentence verdicts are automatically reviewed by the Florida Supreme Court, and that changes everything. So it goes to the Supreme Court, the Florida Supreme Court. United, in Florida, when there's a death penalty case, the trial uh, appeal skips the District Court of Appeal and is heard directly by the Florida Supreme Court. And they issue a ruling several years later, after there was much publicity about the dog basically being fraudulent. Um, the Florida Supreme Court issues their ruling um, almost unanimously, I think there was one dissent and he didn't write an opinion, um, reversing Juan Ramos's trial verdict. Talk about a reprieve. 
In August of 1986, the Florida Supreme Court rules that John Preston's scent lineups were not scientifically proven and were virtually untested. The guilty verdict was overturned, and Ramos wins a new trial. He comes back for a retrial. At this particular point, Norm Wolfinger, who was my co-counsel in this case, uh, had been elected state attorney. So they had a conflict of interest through Norm's participation in the case and could no longer do the case. So the state attorney in the Ninth Judicial Circuit, which is Orlando, Orange, Osceola County, was assigned to do the case. And the counsel in that case was Belvin Perry. Right, who was the judge later, later on in the, on, yeah. uh, in the so, case Anthony. Yeah, so case. he went on to be the, the prosecutor in, uh, in Juan Ramos's case out of Orange County. And he had co-counsel who was a woman who I do not believe her name. And um, they were the well, they were prosecutors in that case. At that point, I continued on with Juan Ramos, as was trial counsel, along now with Marlene Alva, um, who was a good capital case, uh, a good trial lawyer. And just uh, for our, our, like, our, our listeners, she was the original um, attorney for Gary Bennett, and she's now correct. a judge. Yes, correct. Marlene Alva um, started with Norm Wolfinger and I in the state attorney's office in the mid-70s. Um, I got elected public defender in 1981, and when I did, I hired Norm to be my chief assistant's public defender. One of the very first things we did was went up to Tallahassee to recruit Marlene Alva to come work in our office, who in the meantime had left the state attorney's office and was working for FDLE in Tallahassee. So we went up and and convinced Marlene to come back down to Brevard County and work in the public defender's office. And uh, she's a very good trial lawyer. She's since gone on uh, to become a county court judge in Seminole County and now is a sitting circuit court judge in Seminole County and is very well respected and should be. Uh, But she was my co-counsel in the second case uh, with Juan Ramos. That case proceeded to trial with essentially the same evidence as the first case, minus the dog testimony. Mm. And that jury brought back a verdict rather rapidly of a not guilty verdict for Juan Ramos. And Juan Ramos effectively now goes from being on death row at Florida State Prison to being free, being a free man. Wow. So it was a terrific turn of events uh, over several year period of time. And it's worth pausing here for a moment and thinking just how close Juan Ramos came to dying for a murder he did not commit. His journey sounds like a made-for-television movie. Cuban refugee, who while in one of Castro's prisons chops off his own fingers to be labeled crazy, and then is flushed out of Cuba during the Mariel boatlift, only to be accused, tried, and convicted of murder a year later and sent to Florida's death row. There, according to a profile several years ago in the St. Pete Times, his time in prison was marked by suicide attempts, trying to fight off sexual assaults, and preparing for the electric chair, Old Sparky, by shocking himself with the hot wire of his television. And now he goes free. You have to wonder what was going through his mind. He was in line to be executed, and people lied to get him there. So Ramos is found not guilty, acquitted, set free. But without that scientific certainty, I mean that absolute 110% assurance provided by DNA evidence, is there any way of knowing whether Ramos is actually innocent of Cobb's murder? That's something that his attorney, J.R. Russo, has thought of often over the years. 
and has even been asked his opinion on. Um, I get I get asked the question many times when this case comes up through people who know it or or or, or discussing my past. Um, people will talk about the dog, and I will bring up the Juan Ramos case, and they'll ask me, um, "Did he do it?" Um, I don't think Juan Ramos did this at all. Um, obviously, the physical evidence didn't tie him to it in any way, shape, or form. Um, the testimony that was circumstantial was was weak and conflicting. But one of the things that, that gives me comfort in knowing perhaps that he didn't do this was the fact that Juan Ramos has been free now for some 25 years and has never gotten in trouble again. And through my experience, both as a prosecutor and the public defender, um, it, I tend to, to notice that, that people who commit crimes like this um, tend to commit crimes again. And Juan has not. He works as a truck driver down in Homestead, lives with his mother, and has, to my knowledge, never been involved um, with anything uh, larger than a traffic ticket. Wow. And to me, that speaks volumes about um, and giving me comfort in whether I think he, he did it or not. And so I tend to believe that he did not. Juan Ramos got lucky, if you can call it that. But it makes you wonder how many others might be suffering in a Florida prison trapped in a surreal tragedy of living this nightmare day in and day out. I mean, can you imagine Groundhog Day, the movie, and it's the worst day of your life? Oh. And, and I've been in those prisons across our state. That's not a place you want to be. It is dangerous and on so many fronts. And losing your freedom in an 8 by 10 cell, sometimes sharing that with another individual who is really guilty of such a crime, uh, I could not even imagine that. I would never want to be in that person's shoes. That was former president of the Florida Senate, Mike Haridopoulos. He was instrumental in securing a compensation for Wilton Dedge and then later William Dillon after both men were exonerated through DNA evidence. Exoneration equals freedom in most cases. But is there ever a way to ever compensate someone for a lifetime lost? How do you repay someone not able to experience parenthood or who was wrongfully locked up while loved ones passed away? How do you pay someone back for all that potential that went poof while they instead were forced to spend day after day, year after year, staring at a gray cinder block wall? How do you explain to someone that it may not have been an accident or a mistake? That maybe they were seen as throwaways, expendable, a means to an end to clear cases or tally convictions. Meanwhile, the subject of season one of Murder on the Space Coast, Gary Bennett, languishes in prison after 33 years. His case is a lot like Juan Ramos, almost identical really. The same prosecutor, the same fraudulent dog handler, and the state's embarrassing use of jailhouse informants. We held a special event after season one where we invited some of the voices you heard to a special panel and invited the public. It was there that Chief Assistant Public Defender Mike Parolo, the guy who fought so hard to get William Dillon freed, said that prosecutors, including Dean Moxley, would regularly walk up and down the corridors of the county jailhouse asking, who wants a deal, and looking for their snitches. That caused me and my editors a lot of angst. How could our prosecutors be so brazenly underhanded? Can this really happen here in this country? Maybe we were just naive, but we all found that to be, well, a little shocking. That was one of the major reasons we went deeper into these cases as our subject for season two. I asked several people to verify that ugly tidbit, including former Florida Department of Law Enforcement agent and profiler 
Tom Davis, who actually worked as an investigator for the prosecutor's office in the early 1980s. For whatever reason, I was not asked to do it. I would like to, and, and uh, looking back, I'd like to think, you know what, I don't think he would do that, so they didn't ask me. That's a pat on my back, but I would, I'm, I'm going to live with that. I hope that's what it was. Uh, yeah, I, there were people. Uh, it was, it was, it was common scuttlebutt. Like, oh yeah, let's make a deal. To the point that uh, Judge Waddell uh, issued an order, which of course you've got or a directive saying stop. We don't have to take Tom's word for it, or mine. Again, because I keep everything. I found a copy of Judge Waddell's order to State Attorney Doug Cheshire dated November 15, 1983. And it says in part, It has been brought to my attention that members of your staff have been communicating with prisoners represented by the Public Defender's Office in reference to giving testimony in exchange for lighter sentences. I was shocked when I was told we don't talk to them unless they talk to us. I do not believe the Supreme Court holds inmates of the Brevard County Jail responsible for our professional code of conduct. Here's Tom Davis to finish his thought. I can assure you, John, you and I could walk to the Brevard County Jail right now and say, who wants to tell me about somebody, I'll cut you a deal. We'll be getting calls before we get back to your office. Sure. Hey, I can tell you about so-and-so. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a practice that, like I said, one of the, one of the most respected long-term judges said, stop, knock it off. Cheshire's response? According to a Florida Today article from 1984, Cheshire responded with two words, Chapter 27, directing Judge Waddell to a Florida statute dealing with the duties and obligations of prosecutors, claiming that his office was working within those guidelines. Waddell was quoted in the same story as saying Cheshire's response was unacceptable. That same article detailed jail sweeps that were going on and said prosecutors had created a let's make a deal climate at the county jail and that just about every murder trial that year featured the cellmates of the accused taking the witness stand for the state. Attorney Greg Eisenmenger, who started out in the public defender's office, said he always tells his clients to loudly and publicly proclaim that their attorney has advised them not to speak about their case. This way, he explains, if the state does try to produce a snitch, there will be numerous others from the jail who can challenge it. It's always frustrating uh, when the state uses some sort of uh, jailhouse informant or, um, quite honestly, uh, where they uh, attempt to use uh, some of these people uh, as confidential informants or undercover uh, operatives uh, in drug cases and where you don't really have uh, <clears throat> a good structure there uh, to back them up. It's their credibility uh, versus you know your client's credibility and it, it creates issues on multiple uh, things. I mean one of the things that it puts you in a position that you have to do quite often uh, is uh, make the tough decision whether or not to put your client on the stand to challenge this so-called jailhouse confession uh, that puts your client in a, a bad situation uh, for other aspects of the case. Uh, so it really strikes uh, not only to a due process 
issue of whether or not someone's getting a fair trial by this type of bought and paid for uh, informant, uh, but it also affects uh, your Fifth Amendment rights uh, as an individual. Because there may be other reasons why you don't want your client to testify, but you either uh, leave this unchallenged, uh, except for the logical challenge of you know it being offered, uh, and uh, yeah, it, it's a tough one. That's a great point and one worth repeating. The only way to really refute testimony from a jailhouse informant that the defendant confessed to the crime is to have the defendant take the stand. But that, of course, opens up the defendant to all types of cross-examination from the prosecutor. It really is a way to force a defendant to give up his or her Fifth Amendment rights. You know, the amendment that protects a person from being forced to be a witness against himself or herself in a criminal case. So this is probably a good jumping-off point to really get into the state's use of snitches and the story of Clarence Zaki, the man who we heard earlier who went from junkyard king to mastermind criminal, murder and child rapist, to the prosecution's darling. I've corresponded with Zaki, and he said he would only grant an interview if we paid him and supplied him with a subscription to our newspaper. Our response was, of course, no. But I have spoken to many people who knew him, here is former FDLE profiler Tom Davis, who shares a long history with Zaki, telling me a story about the kind of person Zaki was even before he became an adult. I relate back to a story that was told to me by a, a very close relative of Clarence, blood relative, in fact, that Clarence, at an early age in Dade County, his mother was a corrections officer. He had a close childhood friend at about early, early adolescence, about 14. And he asked the friend to go break into their home while his mother was at work and steal some money or some things. And the friend said, what do I do if she comes in and catches me? And he said, kill her, his own mother. Wow. And this particular friend of his remembered that way into adulthood and related that story to this very close blood relative of Clarence Zaki. My point being, here's a guy that had uh, adolescent, early homicidal tendencies, your own mother, maternal mother, real mom. So his character is flawed from day one as far as I'm concerned. When he turned 15, Zaki quit school and started to sell used auto parts from his parents' backyard in the 1950s. He had a knack for making money and spending it, buying a horse and a hot rod. He then spent seven years in the Navy before opening his auto salvage business in West Melbourne in 1964. Again, he makes a lot of money and even has a house built on the junkyard property. He also marries Patty Schaefer right there at the junkyard. But by 1980, his appetite for nice things, like his twin Cadillacs and lavish jewelry and other women, catapulted him into the world of stolen cars and drug smuggling, flying marijuana from Jamaica to Brevard County in his own plane. According to attorney Mark Horowitz, Zaki could do anything if he set his mind to it. Zaki was a very intelligent man. I mean, he taught himself to fly. Right. Uh, he, was, he was no dummy. 
but he you could tell this guy was a brilliant individual and a pathological sociopath. He also scared his own family to hear Tom Davis tell it. You had mentioned a story about his wife and what he would have her do. He would send her to uh, taverns, bars at night, and her mission was to pick up some guy, bring that person to the house while Zachy watched them engage in various sexual acts. So, yeah, that's the kind of person he was. Very, uh, by the way, the whole family, including that wife, which I had interviewed and she had testified before, uh, was scared to death of Clarence. They were confident he would kill them if they ever said anything. They had every reason to fear him, as that combination of being brilliant and a sociopath would prove lethal. In April of 1980, looking to expand, Zachy reached out to a pilot, Kenneth Merrithew, to help. Unaware that Merrithew was working with the Melbourne police, Zaki was charged with drug smuggling in May 1980, and he hires Richard Lee Hunt, Dickie Hunt, the brother of prosecutor Michael Hunt, to kill Merrithew, whose cover is now blown. But Hunt went to the cops, and here is attorney Sam Bardwell telling us what happened next. He basically had a pilot that he needed to kill, and Dickie Hunt was... Uh, offered the job. Dickie Hunt happened to be basically adopted brother of Michael Hunt, who was a lifer at the state attorney's office. Clarence Zaki was set up. There was a picture taken of a pilot and his son. There was blood. It looked authentic. And then there was a tape phone conversation where the guy, you know, I calls up Zaki says, Zachy, I did the deed, and Zachy, you could tell he was just, you know, I mean, he had, uh, okay. He said, but there's uh, something I need to tell you. I had to take out his son, too. And he goes, eh, the guy was squirrely, and he just, you know, he just wrote off the murder of a child. So eventually, Zachy realizes Hunt is lying, and he hires a professional killer to get rid of him. Hunt went missing Some pieces of his gold Toyota were found crushed in a junkyard. His remains were recovered seven years later in a Hillsborough County junkyard. Zaki's lawyer was Joe Mitchell. And uh, then he kept getting arrested for trying to hire people to kill uh, Cheshire. One of the people he hired was Michael Hunt's brother, Richard Lee Hunt. That's how all that happened. And then, then afterwards, you know, after all these ugly, unkind things they said about Zaki, which probably were true, then they started using him as their star witness. And let's just go back and say he actually killed Hunt's brother, or he, he actually had Hunt's brother killed. Yes. When it's all said and done, Zaki is convicted of several plots and sentenced to 60 years in prison. But while he is still at the county jail, he hires a man, Richard Lee Dinkins, to kill state attorney Doug Cheshire and Judge William Woodson. Dinkins tells authorities, and now Zaki has a few more trials and is eventually sentenced to 180 years in prison. 180 years. The irony of it all is that the original drug charge was dropped because of a technicality. He could have been free and cleared had he just done nothing. So how does a guy this bad wind up as a star witness? Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. But Clarence Zaki, you know, was sent off for just a huge amount of cases. But Clarence Zaki uh, had this little scheme. And of those who knew what was going on, we said 
Clarence Zaki took more confessions than a Catholic priest. And jailhouse informants. Oh, and all of them. Yeah, that's a joke too. That's that's really a joke. I, I yeah, heard. because yeah, I've met, I've lived with the people, and you got guys that'll do anything to get out. To, they'll say anything you want them to. Yeah. So no, that's not. It shouldn't be used. Yeah. And we've already proven that. You know, most of the time they're lying just to get a deal. And then they deny getting a deal while they're testifying. Right. Even though the prosecutor who's prosecuting knows they're getting a deal. You know, it's still not brought out. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres. And you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridastate.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers. And the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.